Thank you for listening to Ivy Podcast, where we feature weekly leadership conversations with thought leaders and industry experts. Now, here is your host, John Karsibayev. Hi, I'm Alan Quelli, uh, Head of Products and Solutions for Visa in Central America and the Caribbean. Alan, thanks so much for making time to join us on the Ivy Podcast today. You're based here in South Florida? John, well, uh, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. I am based here out of uh, Miami. Awesome. Well, that's super exciting. Um, can't wait to dive into a lot of the, you know, the different topics that you and I prep for this episode. But before we do that, and talk about your current role, current organization. Give us a thumbnail version of your career to date. You know, it's a great question. I've actually built a, a fairly long career at Visa. It's a, over 20 years. I uh, started here, I had gotten uh, my MBA and uh, was attracted. Visa had a uh, leadership development program, which is kind of a rotational program. I started, I did that for a couple of years. A lot of what I worked on uh, turned to be like emerging products uh, in emerging markets. But uh, you know, back in the day, debit was the new product, right? And so uh, I led that debit portfolio for a number of years. Um, spent some time uh, for that first dot-com era, if you remember that. Uh, I was involved in, in the e-commerce group, and then really spent uh, quite a bit of time on commercial solutions. So these are products and solutions geared towards uh, businesses of all sizes, small, medium, and large, as well as governments. Uh, and in that role, I had made a number of contacts over with our global team. So I went over to work on the, on the global and U.S. team, and I spent uh, about six years over there. And what's interesting about that experience, you know, before we had our API sets and before we, you know, we engaged with, with third parties, we try to do this uh, innovation collaboration with select clients. So, you know, very kind of high touch clients, signature clients uh, in the U.S. region. I worked with them to try to build new solutions. Um, I did come back to the Latin America region uh, into the mobile group. And uh, I was excited there to lead some of our first implementations of uh, Android Pay, which is now Google Pay, as well as Samsung Pay. Uh, and from there, I got tapped to, to lead a, a new part of transformation. I, we kind of pioneered, you know, I pioneered the, our FinTech engagement efforts. So this was outreach to the, to the FinTech community to see how we can partner and work together, launching the Visa Everywhere initiative. So this is one of those legacies. It's kind of a a platform for scouting and engagement of early stage startups to see what they've got going on. That's still ongoing. Also led the first equity investments in Latin America. You know, the very first one was with Yellow Pepper, a company that we've since acquired. Um, so that's a you know another interesting part. Then I was tapped to to lead a, another phase of our digital transformation, uh, building the solutions architecture pro, uh, practice, really, which has two components. One. As we're working, you know, with with fintechs and with other partners and our clients, we really need to build the discipline around uh, developing these design blueprints. Right? What's the user experience we want to deliver? What are the components, and how do we integrate them together? And the other piece was really leading, introducing agile methodologies and processes into LEC. You know, with the whole focus of trying to execute faster. And then most recently in December. I was asked to take on uh, this role, managing products and uh, solutions for Central American Caribbean. So in this role, we've got a lot of great products. We've got a lot of great uh, relationships with our financial institutions and our, and our fintech partners. Our goal is to uh, define and execute on our strategy, 
to bring those products and solutions to market, right? To really land them in markets uh, throughout Central America, Caribbean, and, and really excited now by, by this new challenge. Well, that's super exciting. What a diverse career. And I'm pretty sure you've seen the company evolve on, you know, on so many levels in all kinds of different directions and industries, how, you know, just overall, how that shapes the progression of a single organization. That's very unique. So uh, congrats on all the success. Thank you. Um, in terms of your current role within the organization, what, what are some of the trends and insights that you're very passionate about that you've been able to observe, especially us coming out of pandemic and going to the next period? Share with us any thoughts that are very exciting for you. For sure. I mean, I think one, I would say, uh, you know, which is more of a general trend, this whole move towards disruption, right? Starting up a company and even, you know, with a sophisticated technology platform, let's say something for banking is cheaper than, than ever, right? If you look at it over the 20 years, the cost of starting up a business and getting access to, to amazing technology is, is easier than ever. So that's driving, you know, that's introducing a lot of energy and a lot of new ideas, trying to solve maybe some very specific uh, customer problems. And that's exciting because that, that lifts the market, that improves the solutions we've got over for consumers. Um, and then at the same time, when we look at payments, we do see, you know, this is leading to the introduction of new value propositions which helps bring in, you know, if you, if you look at Central America and the Caribbean, the unbanked opportunity is bigger than the banked opportunity. So I talk about, you know, who has a bank account and who doesn't. So there's a whole swath of people that, that don't have bank accounts. So with these new value propositions, you're able to, to extend that reach. And that's exciting. Not only that, but um, you're making it easier from a consumer journey point of view to do a digital onboarding. Instead of visiting a branch, you know, try to do all this uh, in a digital way. And so that's leading to, to greater you know, participation. I think, and, and when the pandemic, what we saw, we, we've also changed our words. We keep talking about credentials versus cards. If you look at us traditionally, we had focused on that physical plastic card and we've got 3 billion cards in circulation. Uh, but now we talk about credentials, right? Your, your card uh, exists in your Netflix account, in your Disney account, Spotify, whatever it is that you're, uh, you know, Amazon, uh, and so we talk about the 30 billion credentials, right? And that people needed, and especially during the pandemic, they needed access to those credentials anywhere they were, because from one day to the next, uh, you know, we had to drive a lot of that. Um, so that that's one piece, you know, on the consumer side. But that, that trend also impacts on the on the merchant side, right? Moving towards this terminal-less uh, type of world, right? Where some of the things we've launched in Costa Rica and Guatemala, for example, tap-to-phone technology where we can take an Android NFC phone and use that to accept a contactless payment, right? So that makes it easier and faster to merchants to, to start accepting payments. And then finally, what I'd say, um, some of the other things you're seeing is just, as you look to the future of user experiences, artificial intelligence, right, is, um, you know, increasingly, it keeps getting better. Uh, and, it, it, you know, you're gonna have more of this automated commerce. I mean, this morning, my Alexa reminded me that I had um, that my maybe it was time to order dog food again, right? And so if I had said yes, then you know they've already got my card on file. That's going to be a totally automated transaction. And then biometrics, right? Um, for more and more of these use cases where the consumer isn't physically present, authentication becomes a, a key piece, right? So using that technology to authenticate. So when you combine AI with authentication, really kind of the, the building block of these user experiences of, of the future. 
Well, those are very exciting trends. And especially from the FinTech perspective, there's just, we've seen such a great evolution of all kinds of different trends that came about, especially when, you know, during the pandemic time and everyone going to a completely virtual world. Um, so that's, that's very exciting. A lot of the trends that you're talking about. So in order to do that, to stay up to date and, you know, keep up with the trends and be ahead of the curve, so to say, uh, there's a continuous need to build and foster that culture of innovation within the organizations, within the teams. What are some, you've been with Visa for quite some time. What are some of the strategies or practical recommendations that really help you achieve such, you know, atmosphere, such environment on your teams or, at, you know, at your organization when it comes to innovation? Yeah, you know, it's, it's a great point. I mean, I think at an organization level, we spent the last couple of years building that open collaboration ecosystem. And I think that that also applies when you look at, uh, you know, what we're trying to do, because at, at a cultural level, you really need to kind of walk the walk, right? And I think part of it, like some of the things we've done, for example, over the last three to four years, one, we opened up our network uh, via APIs. So we extended our capabilities in an easy to consume format. So third parties and developers can build layer on additional um, capabilities on top of ours and those of our clients, right? To develop these new user experiences on the future. So one is, is having this tech platform, you know, our Visa developer platform, VDP for short, that allows third parties to, to access our, our, our capabilities. You know, so that's one. Second is that, you know, part of what, what I led at the beginning and now continues is that FinTech engagement, right? Reaching, acknowledging that you don't need to do everything in-house, that you don't, you might not have all the capabilities. And I liken it to a jigsaw puzzle, right? There's some capabilities you bring, some capabilities our financial institution client brings, and those are the fintechs. So continuously kind of engaging, seeing what's out there, building partnerships. You know, we've also made acquisitions, we've made equity investment, and those are all capabilities that we can bring to the table. And then um, the last piece I'd say is our innovation center, which is kind of a, a new way to build together. Instead of driving it kind of from the top down, it's, hey, let's focus on a consumer pain point and let's develop some, some user experiences that, that can help uh, enhance this or improve this. So I think organizationally, you know, when you look at it, not just for us, but any organization that's out there, it's opening up your network, right, via APIs, focus on open source software. Uh, the other thing that's been real interesting when I work with, let's say, financial institution clients, many years ago, they took a, um, you know, perhaps an open source software, they customized it, you know, took something standard, they customize it, and now to 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 keep developing, it's a little tough because it's only a few people that know the, the customized software. So open source software helps you get access to all those de developers that are uh, that are out there. And then ultimately, I think there's a couple other points. One is is definitely have a culture to promote agile execution. You know, get these small semi-autonomous teams to go out and figure out the best way to deliver. But then also, uh, I think we fall in love with having the perfect strategy. And I think a lot of times the, the quote I always like to use is the, the Mike Tyson quote, right? Everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. And so that requires improvisation and the ability to adapt. And I think it's not so much maybe starting uh, with, the, with the right strategy, but then being able to pivot quickly, right? And that's, that's the key. And then the final piece is really just this continuous focus on the, um, the customer experience, right? People that are the FinTechs, the banks, the, into the companies that are winning, are those that improve the customer experience for, for the end user. So having that focus, incorporating that feedback and making those pivots based on the, you know, the feedback you're getting from consumers, that part is key to, in order to, 
to drive these new experiences and to drive this uh, this collaboration that's needed to, to succeed. Those are great insights and thank you for sharing that from the innovation standpoint. It's really like you mentioned, one thing that stood out is walking the walk as you are the leader of you know your division, your organization, it all boils down to how do you go about when it comes to innovation? How do you treat certain things when it comes to actually bringing a particular solution to life? Uh, experimentation, I'm pretty sure is a big part of this. So those are very exciting trends that uh, you're highlighting. As we come out of you know pandemic, so to say, and with with the with last year, when it comes to purchasing behavior, what are some of the things that you had observed when it comes to digital and e-commerce space that really shaped that new way, so you know, new way of purchasing, so to say, or consumer behavior. No, definitely. I mean, and as horrible the pandemic has been, and you know, uh, continues to be, I think one of the silver linings was really there was there was this trend towards greater digitization to begin with, right? And the pandemic definitely, you know, accelerated that, you know, full full speed ahead. In the sense that, uh, you know, as you're mentioning, from one night to the next, you know, all of a sudden, um, you know, you have, if you were a merchant. You had to go from kind of the offline world and set up online. Maybe you're a, a restaurant and you needed to be able to offer delivery and takeout, or maybe you're a physical goods store and you need to have your online store. And so what that in turn did is, uh, you know, we published a study back uh, last year, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, 13 million people in Latin America made an e-commerce transaction for the first time, right? And so once consumers start using this uh, and they see the benefits, it's something that they continue doing. So it's accelerated that that move, you know, e-commerce continues to grow uh, faster than real world payments, it represents, you know, an increasingly larger share of, of transactions. So that movement, just the pandemic accelerated. The other thing that the pandemic accelerated, again, because of safety and, and hygiene and the need for, you know, we talk about the contactless consumer, right? That uh, they wanted to be safer. So, you know, if I don't have to give you my card, or if I can just, you know, do a transaction without, you know, interacting with, with, you know, with, with someone, you know, again, handing over the card, then that's a win. And so, you know, through both the, the actual contactless cards that, that we've rolled out over the last number of years, as well as new form factors like uh, phones, you know, there's a number of wallets, um, you know, at an issuer level that permit me to, to pay using the NFC technology or near field communications to do that contactless transaction, just kind of tap and go. That's been huge. And uh, for example, in Costa Rica, in Guatemala, in Panama, more than half of the transactions today are being made via contact. So that, that's something that the pandemic accelerated. And as you know, uh, more and more of these uh, urban transit systems you know, come online, now you know, each country is going to recover a little differently and opening up from their, you know, their, 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 their rules and their quarantine. Uh, mass transit is another place where we've been setting up acceptance of, of contactless transactions. Uh, you know, a couple of examples in, in Rio de Janeiro, we've got, um, you know, a number of, uh, uh, well, we've got the, the key program there set up contactless, and we've got programs in, in Guatemala, in the Dominican Republic. And what really happens there is that it establishes a habit. This is something I'm doing daily. Once I tap and go and I see how convenient it is, I want to keep doing it, you know, and it's those, those places where consumers need to, to get in and out quickly, obviously accelerated by, by the pandemic. Um, and in fact, in our earnings call the other day, they mentioned the example of uh, New York City, where you know we have kind of tap and go present in, in the uh, transit system there, and how today about 30% of the transactions in New York 
are being done via contactless. Again, you build a habit at these kind of everyday type of transactions. You see how convenient and you want to keep going. And certainly on a, on a personal anecdote, uh, I try to pay as much as I can where I see the, the contactless logo and I, I play with my phone. It's easy. I don't have to pull the, the card out of my wallet and it's a win. And I think the pandemic's accelerated both the drive towards e-commerce as well as the drive towards towards contactless transactions. Oh, that's super interesting. And you've mentioned something to the extent of contactless payments, because that trend has been growing pretty extensively in the last you know, several years. Mm-hmm. Uh, share with us your thoughts on that. Uh, what are the different trends that you, you're seeing in contactless payments and what's really next for that? Well, look, I mean, I think the, the, the maybe that first use case has been led by the actual card itself, right? These cards come with kind of the chip that you can insert and the contact list that you, um, you know, that, that allows you to do these transactions. So first that is having that kind of, there's kind of two pieces. There's the infrastructure, the, the card side and the infrastructure on the merchant side. I think what, what the, the world has kind of woken up to is just what a great experience that is. And generally the markets, what they do is they put these limits, right? Hey, a transaction below a certain amount, you can just kind of tap and go. And as they see that it works and it's secure, they keep raising those limits. So I, I see continued growth in the share of, of contactless transactions. The other thing is that then the form factor starts changing, right? Whereas maybe it starts with kind of a, a card that you just tap and go. Increasingly, certainly on Android devices where you know any developer can create an NFC wallet. Uh, and then we've seen that in, in our markets, right? We've got a number of financial institutions that have offered uh, NFC technology baked into their, their mobile wallet, right? So now I can use my, my phone to perform that transaction. But in addition, you know, when we talk about the internet of things, all these kind of connected devices, in, uh, we've, we've launched programs with Fitbit and Garmin. So now where I can take my, my watch, you know, that I might use for, for running and whatnot. And hey, I don't even need the, the, the phone. I don't even need the wallet. I can just kind of tap and go with my device. And so I, I think the trend towards the future, contactless continues to increase. Those limits continue to increase, driving greater share of transactions. Consumers find the value and expect that value through other form factors, right? Uh, especially through the IoT devices, uh, you know, the wearables. It, it increasingly, it's just kind of, uh, and there's some great uh, videos out there of people, um, you know, doing some funny gags with their contactless cars because, you know, it, it gives the impression that it's just seamless, you know, it's, it's invisible and it's, uh, it's a really great user experience. No, absolutely. And, you know, funny, you mentioned some of these stories. Uh, it's amazing how how the overall technology have really transformed in the last couple of years, especially with, you know, the mobile payments with, you know, the, the Apple Pays of the world and yep. so forth. It really almost shapes, like you were talking about, the overall behavior, how we pay for things, how we, these days, I sometimes I even catch myself without, like, without a wallet. Uh, yeah. Just yeah. Convenience is just at another level. It's just unbelievable. It is, and I think we're still going to develop other use cases for contactless, right? Obviously, we're talking about payments, but it's kind of cool. You know, you can go into certain hotels and use your mobile phone to unlock the door, right, uh, of, of your of your hotel room. And like that, you know, access certain uh, facilities. So I think those the, the use cases behind that technology are going to continue to expand. Obviously, we're excited about the ones in payments, but for consumers, there's a ton of other use cases where contactless is going to make their life easier. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's very interesting. 
And so with, with so much expertise and experience in, in financial sector and the fintech and the payments, uh, can't help but uh, for, for personal reasons to ask you for your thoughts on just overall, especially lately, the trend of cryptocurrency. Uh, with with the evolution of so many you know digital coins out there these days with the NFTs and just overall blockchain taking shape, what are just your overall kind of high level thoughts on the adoption of cryptocurrency and the blockchain in the financial sector? You know, it, it's a great question. I mean, we look at digital currency along kind of three dimensions, right? You've got your your let's say for lack of a better word, traditional crypto, right? So. These are not you know, backed by uh, a stable asset. So let's say your Bitcoins, your Ethereums. You've got now the introduction of the stable coins, right? So still private entities, but now they're tying it like USDC tied to uh, an actual asset. So it removes the, the volatility uh, behind some of the, uh, the, the crypto. And then the final piece are the CBDC, the central bank digital currencies. Um, and China obviously uh, has been very active in that space. And, one of the regions that's most active is, is the Caribbean, right? Where we've got the Bahamas with the launch of their sand dollar. We've got the Eastern Caribbean with the launch of their Dcash and Jamaica has got a sandbox going. So, uh, you know, for Visa, it's kind of that network of network strategy. When we look at these, um, you know, these are different and I think each one of them holds their, their potential. You know, I have seen a number of studies with uh, the, the traditional crypto for folks that live in countries, you know, with an inflationary environment, that's one way to kind of, use it as a store of value. But stable coins, I believe, have the opportunity to unlock a, a number of different use cases, certainly in the, in the cross-border space. And then when, when you look at, at, at Visa and what we're doing, it's that network of networks approach, right? This is another rail that we can plug in. We've partnered, I think we've gotten out of close to 40, um, you know, wallets and exchanges, uh, you know, like crypto.com, like Coinbase, that where we've issued credentials to, right? So a card, that's tied to your to your crypto wallet. Obviously, when you use it at the point of sale, uh, that where you know is still converted to fiat, but you're able to plug in and it gives you utility on your existing wallet. So you know that that's one branch how we're working together. I think the second recently, we launched um, you know our first pilot with digital currency settlement. So if you're a crypto native player like you know crypto.com. You know, obviously, when you transact at the point of sale, that generates obligations, right? I'm using my card, uh, you know, from my uh, financial entity, and that generates obligations, and those obligations are, are settled. And so, for those crypto native players, you know, more of the options is might be to settle in USDC, right, in, in a stablecoin. So we re recently made an announcement about that. And then finally, you know, just trying to enable the ecosystem, making it easier uh, for FIs to 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 buy and sell crypto. Through different partnerships, we've got a partnership, uh, you know, with Anchorage uh, and with Circle. And so, for us, you know, we view it. Uh, consumers will ultimately determine, you know, where the use cases are, or what they like. But what we're trying to do is enable greater utility for those that are choosing to either store value uh, through crypto or, you know, have their crypto wallet, uh, you know, ready to use. Yeah, though I'm, uh, and I, I appreciate you you being able to to summarize that in such a you know concise way because. I, I understand how loaded of a question that is, and we spent <laughs> the you know entire episode talking about this. Which you know, for me, it's a it's a personal kind of passion of mine that I've been exploring more and more on a daily basis. But um, aside from that, when it comes to um, really building a team of talented individuals, whether for your teams or just at organizational level in general, 
share with us your strategies or practical recommendations that really help you, re, you know, attract and retain top talent? You know, and, and that's a great uh, question because it, it really is. I mean, it sounds like a cliche, but it really is all about the people. So maybe I'll talk about maybe, you know, interviewing first and then maybe, uh, you know, once we hire them, what, what's important. Yeah, please do. I think, I think um, you know, a couple of things, you know, table stakes, you've got to have the, the technical skills or knowledge, you know, that, that you need. Um, there's there's obviously things that, that that you can learn. Sometimes we want very specific things, but assuming you've got that, that technical knowledge, uh, then I think it's three things we look at. One are your analytical skills, right? How are you able to transform data into insights, into action, right? And it's not about, you don't need to have all the right, you know, the right, you've got it all figured out, you got all the right answers, but it's about asking the right questions, right? What's the kind of info you need to arrive at a conclusion? So the analytical skills are, are important. The second are communication skills, especially storytelling, right? A lot of what we're doing is complex. Like your, your question right now around crypto, you can go into 50 different, um, you know, uh, tangents. And so the question is, can you tell a story depending and adjust it for your audience, right? Um, what do they need to know? Why is it important for them? And what's the, what are the key points you want to get across to be able to tell that? So maybe we go deeper if if maybe it's someone now more interested in, in not so much the selling part, the commercial side, maybe, hey, what are the considerations as I implement this? Or maybe it's an executive briefing that, that people need to know, you know, some key points fairly quickly and concisely. So I think being able to communicate and storytelling is, is another big piece. And the last piece would be interpersonal. Collaboration is key. I mean, that's a theme we've been driving throughout this. More and more of these things, it's not just working internally, it's working externally with clients, with partners. So the ability to work together, um, you know, that, that's got to click. So that's a little bit on, you know, on the screening side and how we bring people in. And then once people are, are there, obviously, I, I think you've got to have a compensation and reward structure, you know, that, that's, that's adequate, right? But beyond that, because, you know, I think uh, while we always kind of focus on money and, and, the, and the rewards, and that is important, I think people need a sense of purpose, right? Why am I working on this? Why is it uh, important? And what is my contribution to this? And then the final piece is just, you know, uh, this is probably like the simplest thing. And sometimes it's a little, uh, you know, like that, that quote, everything I needed to know in life I learned in kindergarten, right? Basic recognition, right? The pleases, the thank yous, and just acknowledgement of those little milestones that help you move forward. You know, I liken it to a, to a sports teams, right? You know, we have this goal, this is our mission. And we're all in this together. We either win together or we lose together. So building that 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 esprit de corps, that you know, that sense of purpose, and, and keeping people fired up and motivated. If they're fired up and motivated, then I think uh, you know the sky's the limit in, in terms of what you can do. You're going to have setbacks, but it's about managing those setbacks and and keeping keeping the ball moving forward. I think is is the biggest part. Yeah, those are very interesting perspectives. And when it comes to the actual interview, give us um, you know. Like you've mentioned, candidates go through technical assessments and all of that great stuff, multiple rounds, probably panel interviews. When they interview with, with you, uh, what, is, what does an interview with Alan look like? Uh, what, uh, <laughs> do you keep it pretty traditional? Do you get creative? But more importantly, what do you look for in the responses when you hear them? Look, I mean, yeah, generally, I mean, we'll, we'll probably, you know, book about half an hour. A lot of times, you know, if I'm interviewing them, maybe there's been a, a, a number of interviews before. Um, so you might have some insights or, hey, you know, we need to double click here. So it's kind of understanding, you know, getting that sense of, um, you know, at a high level, just, hey, you know, um, do they know what they're talking about? You know, are, are they kind of focused? I, I try to look at, at 
probably experiences in the past, you know, what did they take away uh, from that? What was their learning? What was their role in, in driving the result? You know, what did they learn both good and bad? You get a sense also for that, that nature, the, the, the analytical piece that we're saying, you know, how do they collaborate? How do they communicate? And understanding the motivations and drivers, right? Why, why do you really want to kind of take on this role? Why is this exciting for you? Understand, you know, what are their key drivers if they're looking ahead? Um, and how they, you know, again, how they reason, how they arrive at conclusions, you know, from prior experiences. Sometimes I'll even ask for specific examples of experiences, maybe experiences that were challenging, how they navigated that to to solution, maybe other ones, you know, what are what are some of the successes that they're they're most proud of. But it's really to get a, a vibe. Ultimately, you know, interviewing is an exact science because 30 minutes is, you know, you get some insights, but it's not the same as working with someone day in and day out. But, you know, you trust the process. Uh, you know, you're going to have more wins than, than losses. Sometimes you do make mistakes. But I, I think, you know, if you can gain those insights, it helps you improve your, your chances of success. And then once they're in there, obviously, that's when the journey begins and making sure you've got the right structure, the right support system and uh, and keeping folks motivated. Right. No, those are great insights and um, of just operating in a technology space and then staffing talent acquisition. It's always interesting to observe the different dynamics when it comes to the interviewing skills. Uh, something that I've you know observed a lot is, you know, unfortunately, a lot of interviews really focus too much on kind of identifying that lack of weakness where whether am I able just to get along with that person versus the other paradigm in terms of what is the strength that we're missing on the team? And mm -hmm. is that particular candidate capable of filling that void? Uh, so those are just some, some of the interesting dynamics that I always observe when it comes to interviews. Yeah, and the other thing you wanna to see too is, you know, sometimes I'll ask, you know, for Jim, just to share their kind of anecdotes in terms of, you also wanna get a sense for their passions, right? If they're coming in in the product world, well, forget about payments. Tell me what what's your favorite product and why, or, or a couple of favorite products. Why does it work so great? Why is it awesome? Just so you get a sense for, for where their passions are coming from, which is again, a, a sense of motivation. But yeah, I mean, ultimately um, having a team with a, well, a diverse team with a diverse set of skills, where folks can complement each other, I think that's what you're looking to build right. and retain. No, absolutely. That's a great point. And um, the last portion of each episode, I like to focus on some of the sources that each guest you, uses on a daily basis for self-actualization and learning. Share with us your sources that really help you stay ahead of the game. What do you let your mind be exposed to? <laughs> You know, I was thinking about this when I, I kind of start, but let's say my, a typical day, you know, yeah. I, I'm still one of those old school people that, that subscribe to a newspaper. So I start the day very light. You know, I'll just look through the sports section, keep it light, nothing too dramatic. Obviously, from there, move more towards general news. And then a, a couple of sources where I combine kind of sources, you know, between Twitter and LinkedIn. You know, I've got a number of people that I follow, um, either general interest news on, um, you know, payments, obviously, the payment space. Uh, what's going on with fintech, what's going on with, with crypto, just as a way to kind of stay and then just general interest stuff that's completely uh, out there. Uh, obviously, in the payment space, something like, you know, payments.com, I'll follow some, uh, you know, specific people on, on fintech, I'll follow some specific people on, on general news, on international news, on what's happening in Central America and the Caribbean, uh, as a way to, to stay. And I'll do that throughout the day. You know, if I've got a little you know, 10 minutes, maybe I'll, I'll do a quick scroll. If something catches my eye, you know, I'll try to read it then. Um, you know, once I get to kind of the, the nighttime, there might be one or two that I might want to follow up on. 
but yeah, I do try to kind of disconnect a little bit, um, you know, towards later in the night, but I do try to kind of almost keep that continuous feed going uh, throughout the day, which is challenging because as you got back-to-back calls and, and whatnot, but you try to kind of sneak it in there because uh, every day uh, the, the pace of change is so fast now. Every day there's a new announcement. Every day there's a new, uh, and certainly press releases are another another way. I mean, there's always kind of new announcements and new activity going on and, and, and certainly in payments. Right. No, those are great. Uh, that's a great perspective on because with so much information availability out there with attention span of just being a couple of seconds, it's always interesting to hear how people these days kind of what's their content diet. That's why, you know, yeah. I asked a lot of that question is very interesting. Um, in terms of the, you know, what are you currently reading as you know, when it comes to books? And is there a book that you always recommend to others? And why is that? Well, you know, it's great. I um, it's funny because maybe, maybe I'm supposed to say I'm reading all these books on leadership and business. But when I when I go to, to read books, I try to get out of the the business space. And increasingly, I've been reading a lot of nonfiction. There's so many amazing stories out there that are true that it's like you couldn't make it up. You know, I think uh, I've read a number of books over this last year. One of the ones that was interesting actually, you know, um, takes place in, in Miami. It's called The Year of Dangerous Days, and it chronicles Miami in in 1980 which faced three things at the same time, right? Uh, you know, race riots. They had the Mario boat lift, you know, that brought over 125,000 people in a couple of months. And then they had the explosion of uh, kind of cocaine and cocaine-related violence. Uh, any one of the, you know, these things could, could sink a city and somehow they, 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 they managed to get through it and, and, you know, thrive afterwards. But it is a, it's very interesting. Um, I do think there's a, you know, there, there's books... Um, it's funny. One of the businessy books that that I that I do think, um, you know, it's it's back from like the 1920s. That's still you know relevant. You know, I had put it. Uh, I never read it, and then you know later in my career, I picked it up. I go, let me see what this is all about, and I found it interesting. It's just basic common sense stuff. You know, how to win friends and influence people, and it's just because at the end of the day, we're we're humans and how we connect. And so that's a book that I found to to live up to. Let's say the the, the hype. And then outside of that, there's a lot of, uh, I think, interesting books um, that are just interesting in terms of general knowledge. Um, you know, there was one, History of the World in Six Classes, that tells the story of humanity, you know, through consuming different um, different beverages. Just a different take to tell a story on history, but told through a different lens. Um, so there's, there's just, you know, a, a lot of interesting stuff and a lot of interesting uh, nonfiction out there. Um, you know, recently there were two other books one is they tell a, a true life story of a kidnapping case in Northern Ireland, which is really used to tell the story of the troubles, you know, and the conflict that, that they had there throughout, uh, throughout a number of decades. And then most recently, it's a story, uh, it's called The Spy and the Traitor. And it is the true life story uh, of MI6 out of uh, London, who recruits, uh, I think, the highest profile, um, you know, Soviet agent who was stationed in the, in the London embassy throughout the Cold War and, you know, the, the amazing impact that that individual had. So, uh, you know, a lot of great stories out there. Some of them you can't put down. And, and when it's a true story, it, it makes it even that much more interesting. So oh, sorry, I don't know if that was a long-winded answer to your question. <laughs> no, no, those are great recommendations. And we'll make those available in the show notes so others can definitely check them out. Alan, can thank you enough for your time today. Very short and insightful conversation. Personally, learned quite a bit. Uh, so definitely going to stay in touch with you. Perhaps we can do another episode in a year or so, see how much I've changed. Well, thank you, John. I appreciate being on the program. I appreciate the time and uh, thank you and good luck with everything. 
Thank you for listening to the Ivy Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to our RSS feed on ivypodcast.com and all major podcasting platforms like Spotify and iTunes. As always, if you enjoyed this podcast, please give us a rating on iTunes.